Welcome to Jacobin Show. It's uh, me, producer Kale. Uh, typically, you would be seeing Jen right now, uh, but Jen is off this week. She'll be back next week. Uh, but boy, oh boy, do we have a show for you because it is debate night. We got uh, two rounds for you. I think you're going to enjoy both of them. First up, we have Eric Levitz versus Bronco Marketich. They'll be discussing what the appropriate left response to the invasion of Ukraine should be. They've both written some articles where they've hashed out some of their differences. I hope this video actually uh, furthers that discussion. Then we got Slavoj Žižek versus Vivek Chibber on the role of ideology and capitalism. Vivek has a new book out that we've covered on the show before. You should check out that interview. But I thought it would be a good idea to put him in conversation with one of the people who has done the most ideological critique against capitalism in the past few decades. So buckle in and enjoy the show. As the brutal Russian invasion of Ukraine has now got into its second month, the American left has produced a number of responses to the situation. Much has been made of both the Russian ruling class's aggression and the American ruling class's geopolitical interests in Eastern Europe, as well as what is the most appropriate means to achieve peace in the war and the region broadly. Uh, but this has provoked a number of criticisms and responses. Most of them have been pretty dismissive, but easily the most thoughtful has come from New York Magazine's Eric Levitz in a piece titled, The Left Has Half-Baked Answers on Ukraine. So to go into this, we are now joined by Eric Levitz, as well as Jacobin's own Bronco Mark Katich. Bronco recently wrote a response article titled, What the Left's Critics Ignore About the Military Solutions to Ukraine. So I'm now going to hand it over to Eric, who's going to outline where the article came from, what the main arguments are, and then we'll hear from Bronco, and it'll open into a little bit more of a larger discussion. So, Eric. Sounds good. You know, the impetus for the piece, there's been really sort of a diversity of thought about the Russia-Ukraine conflict within the broad American left, um, but, you know, within a significant portion of the socialist left, and uh, I think the mainstream of DSA, the... Um, the the basic position has been to oppose sending military aid to Ukraine um, of any kind, and uh, as well as opposing broad-based sanctions on Russia. Um, I'm sympathetic to aspects of this position. I, I think I broadly, tentatively agree with 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 the the, the position on sanctions, um, and I tentatively uh, support. Um, the arming of Ukraine, and so object there, although my views are a bit unsettled on that. What I was most concerned with um, in the responses to it was less the positions themselves than what I felt like was the quality of, of a lot of the argumentation, which um, I felt like failed to acknowledge or anticipate sort of um, counter-arguments and objections that, that, you know, I think are very prominent within the discourse and come, I think, pretty readily um, to mind uh, if one really sort of scrutinizes the, the question. Um, and I thought that was important, sort of an important failing, uh, in part because the positions that the socialist left is arguing against here um, are really overwhelmingly popular uh, among Americans. There's broad public support in, in, in polls for arming Ukraine and, and sanctioning Russia. 
Um, and these positions also have significant traction among the broad liberal left and, and a lot of people who are potentially, um, you know, uh, very sympathetic to socialist politics. I know um, multiple DSA members or, or uh, people who were DSA members who have left the organization uh, out of alienation uh, from these positions. And so g given that climate, I think it's, um, you know, just for the, you know, to the extent that uh, socialists are going to succeed in persuading the unconverted about uh, this stance on, on the conflict, um, and to the extent that they're going to more broadly just sort of build uh, their base, I think it's really important to, to reason uh, about these questions, you know, really uh, carefully and, and seriously and, um, you know, steel man and anticipate uh, sort of what, what the skeptics' objections are going to be. Um, so what I saw as, as kind of a key weakness in, in the arguments um, was sort of this um, presentation of seeking a diplomatic resolution to the conflict and providing military aid to Ukraine as sort of self-evidently antithetical positions um, and not addressing the objection that, you know, potentially a militarily strong Ukraine might be a, a precondition in order for a uh, diplomatic resolution to be possible. Um, so in, you know, the piece of Branco's that sort of, uh, Branco's that sort of um, kicked off our back and forth, um, he wrote that, uh, you know, in opposition to sending arms to Ukraine um, and, and argued that peace could only be achieved by a mutually acceptable negotiated settlement that guarantees Ukraine's territorial integrity while addressing Russia's longstanding security concerns. Um, so my primary critique of that piece was that it framed military aid to Ukraine as an, uh, again, an alternative um, to such a settlement without addressing the counterargument that, that military aid might be necessary um, in order to achieve one. And I think that there's some evidence to support that uh, position, even if it's not necessarily dispositive. Um, so we know that, you know, at the, at the invasion's outset, Russia declared its uh, interest in conquering, um, you know, uh, fully demilitarizing Ukraine, dissolving its army and um, regime change in Kiev. Uh, they had sort of very maximalist military goals that would have um, completely eroded uh, Ukraine's sovereignty over its territory. Um, and it was the Ukrainian army's anticipated success, its strength in fending off this much larger Russian force and imposing uh, far more casualties um, and, and losses of equipment than um, the Russian uh, leadership had anticipated that has um, led the Kremlin to at least signal right now that it um, it might be amenable to a uh, settling basically for the annexation of the Donbass and a land bridge uh, from Crimea um, through to Russia, along with a Ukrainian commitment to neutrality and, and several other provisions. It's not 100% clear, you know, whether um, that, that would in fact satisfy the Kremlin, and there's a bunch of obstacles to, to, to sealing that as an agreement. Um, nonetheless, we are moving towards a situation uh, where the kind of agreement that both Branko, Branko and I support um, uh, seems a bit more possible, and it seems to be uh, downstream of, of Ukrainian military strength. Um, so there is this question of how, what role Western military aid actually played in Ukraine's uh, battlefield performance thus far, um, and I am, you know, I, I don't have the authority to, um, to, uh, you know, speak definitively on that. It seems to me from the reporting that I've seen 
that you know javelin and stinger missiles, uh, various forms of air defense, have have proven important in Ukraine's um, military success. I do think that even if one discounts the importance of uh, specific military aid and weapons provisions since the invasion, um, if you consider that the Ukrainian defense forces have been built up uh, for several years um, through Western military aid in the form of training operations um, and, and various forms of assistance since the 2014 invasion, I, I think it's hard to sustain that um, Western military aid has played no role in um, Ukraine's capacity to defend off um, this invasion. Uh, and, you know, I, I think that those on Bronco's side of the debate would argue that that military aid itself, uh, you know, is a cause of the war, that it was a provocation to Russia. Um, and I think that's a serious argument. Um, but I also think that, you know, we kind of, uh, none of us has access to the inner workings of Vladimir Putin's mind. Um, and, and so I think we fundamentally cannot dismiss the possibility that, like other megalomaniacal leaders throughout history, uh, including George W. Bush, um, Putin may have launched a regime change war in Ukraine out of offensive imperial ambitions rather than defensive security concerns, um, you know, in, in which case uh, it's possible that, you know, had the West withheld military assistance since 2014, that um, Russia would control a great deal more of Ukraine um, and, and perhaps even have uh, managed to uh, take over Kiev, um, which could have precipitated sort of the same protracted counterinsurgency war uh, that we saw when we, uh, our government, uh, took over Baghdad. Um, and so, you know, for these reasons, it, it just seems to me that, that it's not obvious that um, withholding military aid in Ukraine would either have been conducive to a, uh, a settlement of the conflict um, that would have preserved Ukrainian territorial uh, integrity, uh, even over part of its territory. Um, and it, nor is it, it clear to me that um, it would have uh, advanced the, the goal of just peace, even if we stipulate that we're not that interested in, um, in Ukrainian nationalism. Um, it, it seems to me that everything that we've seen so far indicates that uh, that Russia is not capable of commanding the legitimacy necessary to occupy um, Ukraine uh, and establish peace and stability, that, that this would lead to um, counterinsurgency war. So um, th there are other arguments that I made, but I think that this is the central point of contention between uh, Bronco and I, so I, I think I might leave off there. Yeah, I guess it's my turn. Uh, you know, I want to say I, I have a great deal of respect for Eric, uh, and I, I love reading his stuff. Uh, I disagree pretty heavily with, with the, the argument he was making. I mean, my uh, piece that, that basically that, that was responding to this, um, the first thing we have to understand is that there's, there's limits to what we can do. And so we, you know, you can say the United States, the West, whatever. There's really profound limits. Uh, just as with the Iraq war, when Bush invaded Iraq, there were limits to what could be done. And no one suggested, let's pour money into Iraq's security forces, let's uh, you know, give them weapons, let's uh, try and train them, let's give them intelligence support to try and fight. No one suggested that because there was a real danger of the war, which was terrible and appalling, but uh, it was not necessarily worth it to, to escalate the situation beyond what it was and potentially turn it into a wider confrontation 
turned turn it into something that could end up being a nuclear war. Um, it's a similar case here. Um, my hesitance to, to uh, support military aid, uh, when I say military aid, I mean, you know, the, the, the lethal aid, the offensive aid, uh, the, the, the tens of thousands of rifles, grenade launchers, grenades, uh, missiles that are being just sent into the country and are basically, you know, from the sounds of it, being kind of distributed pretty indiscriminately, uh, is that for the unclear benefit, and I'll explain why I think it's unclear, uh, the unclear benefit of actually what that will bring, I think it does not weigh up to uh, the potential risks, which are really serious and which, unfortunately, in US discourse around this war have not really been talked about at all. Uh, they've sort of been swept under the rug because they're very inconvenient to the kind of rah-rah uh, jingoistic message uh, that has been pushed for, for, for the US and the Western countries to intervene more forcefully in Ukraine. And, and just to be clear, I'm not saying Eric is, is you know, doing a, a jingoistic argument, but that's kind of the climate right now. Um, number one, I, you know, I'm sure the military aid has had some effect. Uh, I think it's also worth noting that Apparently, even U.S. intelligence believed that, that Kiev was going to uh, fall in two days, uh, and it didn't. And there's big questions about why that didn't happen. Um, military aid is, is one answer. Of course, that's one that's going to be preferred by people who, who uh, you know, uh, in favor of that policy or even further uh, U.S. military expansion or intervention in this, in this conflict. Um, but also there's the fact that, and this is not me saying it, this is a, a piece by William Arkin, veteran journalist in Newsweek, who talked to, to analysts working for the Pentagon and, and, and uh, you know, retired Air Force officers. They pointed out that, you know, for instance, Russian, the Russian Air Force has not even used throughout the war. Uh, it has a little bit, but not to the extent that you would imagine. Why is that? There's several different possible strategic reasons why they decide to do it. But it is just as likely that... Uh, that, 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 you know, Putin miscalculated in some way and that the Ukraine's surprising resistance is less to do with some of these things that the U.S. has been doing as helpful as they might have been and more to do with a whole bunch of other factors, including some of those things that the U.S. alleges, you know, that um, Russia, uh, Russian troops are low on morale, that they're uh, confused and <laughs> don't really know why they're there, they don't really want to be there, that they're uh, working with faulty equipment, so on and so forth. Okay. But, you know, like I said, I don't know. And we don't, we don't know. No one knows. I think it's going to be a long time before we actually know what exactly happened. Um, but what are the risks? Um, it, it's not as simple as just you, you send all these weapons into the country. Ukraine is able to uh, be stronger against Russia. They fight them down to some sort of stalemate. And, and then a peace is reached and that's it. Because those weapons don't disappear at the moment uh, a, a peace deal is reached or some sort of, of ceasefire agreement is reached. Those weapons are still around. And there's the worrying issue of the fact that, of course, it can go on the black market and go God knows where through Europe, you know, potentially into Eastern Europe, who knows, maybe even into the Middle East. What that would cause, uh, at this point, we can't say. But that, that's a very worrying thing. But they're also really... Ukraine-specific concerns about what it means to just flood the country with weapons. Um, and, and the Ukrainian far right is the, is the most uh, worrying thing. You know, at the moment, there's this, uh, because Putin used this pretext of denazification to justify the invasion, because that's such a big part of Russian propaganda, in the West now, there is this wholesale kind of attempt to either just never talk about this issue or actually to, to I've now start seeing uh, reporting that's kind of 
playing down, you know, the 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 uh, the importance or the power, the influence, uh, or even the radicalism of the Ukrainian far right. But Ukraine has had a serious far right problem for a very long time. There, there's uh, not just the Azov Regiment, which is part of the National Guard, but there's all sorts of right wing militias, you know, militias that are uh, uh, white supremacists. They're anti-democratic. They view their path to power as as going through violent means. And you have to remember that they did manage in part to do this once. The 2014 revolution, the Maidan revolution, it was overwhelmingly pro-Western liberal Ukrainians who were driving that, that protest movement. And they were concerned about issues like corruption and authoritarianism. But that protest was also in, in many ways hijacked. And if you go back and look at Western reporting from even the US government funded uh, outlets before you know 2021, 2020, they all say this openly, which is that the far right did have a really important role in those protests. And the, the kind of crucial moment where that Yanukovych, the president, decided to flee uh, was basically when, when he had, they had come up with a political settlement with the opposition. The opposition went back to the Maidan protesters and the protesters were not happy about this. And an ultranationalist, uh, one of the ultranationalist leaders, he came up on stage and he said, basically, if Yanukovych is not out of here, by tomorrow morning, we are going to storm the, 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 the presidential palace, we're going to storm parliament, and, and we're going to take him out. And he got the hell out of there. Um, so they succeeded at doing this once. Through in, in the successive years after that, the Ukrainian far right has, people always point to the electoral, uh, the modest electoral success of, of the far right to say, so you know, there isn't a problem in Ukraine. That's not really how it's measured or how you should measure it the influence of the far right in Ukraine. They're, they are, are a very militant and well-organized activist movement. They regularly resort to street violence to get their way. And they've been pretty successful at shifting the political center in Ukraine into a more ultra-nationalist direction, you know, with the government passing things that kind of glorify um, uh, Nazi collaborators and, and, and you know, uh, discriminating against Russian speakers in Ukraine. Uh, for instance, when Petro Poroshenko in 2015 tried to implement part of the Minsk Accords, which were agreed to as a, as a solution to the fighting in, in, in the east, uh, in, in the Donbass, uh, what happened was there was a massive protest outside parliament, the far right stages confrontation, there were grenades being thrown in, I believe three uh, police officers, uh, three security members were killed in that scuffle. Um, and basically, you know, from there until... Until this very war, the far right has consistently said, basically, whether it's Poroshenko or Zelensky, who, by the way, ran and won an insane mandate on a peace platform. They have said if anyone tries to, to implement some sort of peace, which they regard as a capitulation to Russia, uh, we will, you know, they'll pay for it with their life. We will attack them. And, and that wasn't the last time Poroshenko was attacked. Zelensky himself has been threatened by, by, by these far right figures. Um, just, you know, I think a few days before the war was launched, even the New York Times said, you know, Zelensky's in a bit of a difficult position here because the far right that he, that are the most effective fighting force against the Russians. Uh, they're also double-edged sword because what they could end up uh, doing as well is overthrowing his government uh, if they decide that the peace he settles on isn't acceptable. Uh, so this is what the New York Times was saying. Um, you know, just a few days before the conflict. Now, my question is, what happens when there, when there's, when there are weapons just, you know, spreading through the country, thousands upon thousands upon thousands of weapons, 
some of those are going to disappear to the black market. They're going to make their way into basically any Ukrainians willing to fight into their hands. Um, what does that mean for these uh, far-right militias? What does it mean for the future democratic prospects of Ukraine if suddenly there is a, a better armed uh, and actually battle-hardened uh, uh, ultra-nationalist bloc that's willing to use violence, that's willing to overthrow uh, the government by force if need be, uh, and that views any sort of peace with Russia as a, as a capitulation? What does that mean for what, what could happen in the coming you know, months, years? Um, what does it mean for the vulnerable groups who are uh, targets of, of violence and harassment? Uh, by these far-right militias, uh, the, you know, the LGBTQ community, the Roma uh, community. Uh, we don't know. We don't know what that's going to, uh, what that's going to lead to. And, and, you know, the, the thing I always think about is it's that, that, that infamous uh, Zbigniew Brzezinski quote uh, from, uh, is it the late eighties or the, or the, no, it would have been, it would have been sometime in the nineties when he, he uh, justified the, the U S you know, equipping and, and funding and training the, the Mujahideen in, in the 80s in Afghanistan against the Soviets. And, and the quote was, and I'm, I'm slightly paraphrasing here, but it was, you know, what's more important, the, the liberation of Europe in the end of the Cold War or a few stirred up Muslims somewhere in the Middle East? Uh, and of course, those uh, words became very, very tragically ironic um, in, in, you know, a, what, a, less than a decade later. Uh, when, of course, uh, those stood up Muslims uh, ended up carrying out the worst attack on, on U.S. soil in the form of September 11. Um, and we have to remember that the, the far right in Ukraine was long before this war, um, kind of an epicenter for, for far right organizing all over the world, including from the U.S. There were um, American extremists who were inspired by Azov, who went over uh, to, to Ukraine to, to make contacts, to get training, that kind of thing. Um, I, I think we are, we're not nearly close to the end of what this war is and, and we don't know how it's going to go. Um, but the, 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 I think we have to remember the, the, the failure of all of us to be able to see, you know, years and decades into the future uh, uh, and, and uh, what it might mean, uh, you know, to, to, to side, even if it's indirectly to tacitly, side and support violent extremists uh, now out of temporary convenience um, that can become a very uh, untemporary inconvenience later on. Um, and I'll just say, you know, in terms of what the, 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 the uh, whether the military aid has helped to kind of strengthen Ukraine's hand. I mean, Russia's military aims certainly have changed. They seem to be sitting back from the, from the regime change uh, uh, goal. I don't know if that's going to stick. We'll see. I, I hope it does. Um, but I think it's also uh, worth noting that that in terms of the actual negotiating demands, Ukraine has successfully given more. Uh, you know, Ukraine at first was unwilling to budge on the NATO issue. Zelensky a week or two ago said, you know what, NATO's not going to happen and we're happy to talk about new, uh, neutralization. Um, Zelensky also was pretty firm on, on not acknowledging any of Russia's territorial demands. The other day, he said that he was willing to compromise in the Donbass, and he sort of walked it back. But it does seem like, you know, military aims have changed, but the, the negotiating demands, Ukraine seems to be giving more and more, at least as it stands now, uh, uh, as this war goes on. So I think that's also uh, worth, uh, worth going into. But yeah, I think, I think the risk to both American life 
and the rest of Ukrainians, the, the stability of Ukraine, the stability of the entire region, um, I think could be really upended by just sort of continuing to pour military aid in there. I think we have to grapple with this fact if we are going to make a case uh, for sending these weapons into the country. So I'll say up front that I think that um, in, in, in Bronco's response to me, I think the strongest uh, point which, which he sort of referenced at the end there, uh, you know, I, I failed to acknowledge um, the existence, you know, of Ukraine's far right in, in my piece. Um, and I do think that that was a, a genuine oversight. Um, and I, I take his argument very seriously. Uh, and I, I guess, you know, my, my general, I, I, I'm, I'm still navigating, uh, you know, trying to navigate this situation with humility as someone who is, uh, by no means a, a expert, uh, on this region, uh, or this nation. Um, but I, I guess I, I have sort of some questions about, um, you know, Bronco's argument. So, so I think that there's just a, a little bit of a disconnect in the analogy with Afghanistan, um, right, where the direct object of our aid and, and the agent um, that we were empowering in a conflict uh, were directly the extremists themselves, the, the, you know, the Mujahideen, where, whereas here we are arming a sovereign, legitimate government that has within its defense forces a, um, you know, a prominent but, but fundamentally, you know, very small minority uh, that are comprised of far-right militias. Um, so I, I think this is an important uh, distinction um, because it, it, it complicates, I think, the implications uh, that this arming policy potentially has, at least, um, you know, it seems to me at least, uh, it's not obvious to me that arming the Ukrainian government and its formal military would strengthen the nation's far-right. Um, in my understanding, the Azov Battalion um, and, and other far-right militias that comprise a tiny fraction of the Ukraine. And I understand that they comprise a, a, a tiny fraction of Ukraine's defense forces. Um, and it's also my understanding that, you know, um, part of why Azov played such an outsized role in Ukraine's defense following Putin's 2014 invasion um, and, and why they were incorporated into the Ukrainian National Guard, you know, was in part because the nation's formal military uh, was weak. Um, you know, and there was the reason why the Ukrainian government felt compelled uh, and does feel compelled to rely on and cooperate with fighters um, who, you know, in, in, in Bronco's own account, pose a threat to its own leadership, pose a threat to, you know, Zelensky, um, you know, is because of the state, the limits of the state's formal military capacity. Um, so it, it therefore seems at least possible to me that that strengthening the formal military would reduce the leverage that far-right militias can exercise over Kiev, um, while also increasing the central government's capacity to crack down on the far-right militias in a, in a post-war um, situation. Um, you know, and sort of separately from that, I believe that some of the heaviest fighting thus far um, and, and heaviest Ukrainian casualties have been concentrated in, in Mariupol, where the Azov battalion uh, or regiment is, is concentrated. Um, and so it, it at least seems possible to me that the percentage of, of Ukraine's, um, or rather that, um, you know, Ukraine's neo-Nazi defenders are, are dying at a much uh, higher rate than its um, non-far-right militia military, uh, and thus becoming a smaller sort of fraction of its forces. Um, you know, and so I, I think that there's at least potentially that uh, Putin's partial uh, denazification of Ukraine um, might actually mitigate um, the, the problem that the, the Bronco raises. 
I, I guess the other issue here is that it's just not clear to me what the counterfactual is. I mean, I think that it's a problem for every argument, maybe, um, you know, for, for all sides in the, in this uh, argument and in this conflict. It's just it's such a difficult situation um, that it's hard to see what, you know, what the alternative that is really plausible and that is uh, acceptable is. But, you know, if, if we choke off all military aid to Ukraine, um, you know, so as to deny weapons to its far-right members, um, you know, what what, what happens? Uh, Ukraine, you know, has fascistic militias within its National Guard, um, but I think Russia's government, you know, currently, especially this wartime regime, you know, bears no small number of similarities to fascist regimes historically. You know, LGBT Ukrainians uh, will not live well um, if their lives are shadowed by the Azov battalion, but they wouldn't live well under Putinism either. Um, and then, you know, separately, it seems to me that in a scenario where Kiev fell, uh, where Ukraine's sovereign government, um, you know, fell uh, and far-right militias became sort of the locus of resistance to a reviled sort of Russian puppet regime, that the far-right might actually thrive under that scenario as well. Um, it also seems to me that before all this started, before weapons entered the country, that I would imagine that these far-right militants were among the, the, the most well-armed Ukrainians in the country. Um, so, so it's not obvious to me that the, the net effect of this military aid is to strengthen the relative power of the Ukrainian far-right, um, their power relative to the rest of Ukrainian society and the Ukrainian government. It seems plausible to me, uh, don't get me wrong, um, but I, I guess I'm, I'm not, it's not, it's not clear to me that that is what the implication would be. Um, I will say separately that, uh, you know, I, I do have my own concerns about um, the implications of arming Ukraine that include the one that, that, that Bronco has emphasized with the far right, as well as this question of, um, you know, it seems like territorial concessions uh, are going to be a precondition for any, um, you know, agreement that, that Putin is going to except uh, it seems to me that not really plausible uh, that Ukraine can drive Russian forces out of the Donbass. Um, and there's really staunch resistance to that within Ukrainian society. Um, and so the question of whether or not uh, in maintaining Ukraine's capacities militarily, does that sort of solidify intransigence uh, that, that makes this deal impossible. That is something that concerns me because I think, you know, I, um, you know, all else equal very much think that, you know, for all its faults, uh, the, you know, fledgling form of capitalist democracy, however corrupt and, uh, you know, you know, with authoritarian tendencies uh, and nationalist ones, Ukraine is, it, it is a, um, a less uh, unfree uh, form of government than, than Putinism. So I, I would like to see Ukraine maintain as much uh, sovereignty as it can. At the same time, you know, I think peace, uh, you know, war is hell. And I think that, that you know, expediting the return of peace should be the, the number one um, objective here. Uh, and, and it's just not clear to me what, what actual policy course is conducive to that. And, and to that point, there was just one other thing that I wanted to raise because it's a question that, um, that that I'm curious what, what, what Bronco thinks on, and I, I'm not 
fully settled on it myself, but it seems to me when I'm reading about the um, the negotiations uh, between Ukraine and Russia, um, you know, it, it seems to me that there has been progress. Ukraine has um, offered to forswear NATO membership, has um, expressed comfort uh, with committing to neutrality between Russia um, and the West, so not uh, involving itself in their conflicts, not hosting foreign military bases, etc., um, among other things. But what, in every report that I've seen, an absolute, uh, you know, precondition for those concessions from the Ukrainian government has been the receipt of security guarantees um, from third-party powers, uh, generally from Western powers. Uh, and, you know, it's often viewed as like a consortium of like Turkey, China, Germany, France, and the U.S. or something, all saying that that they will basically making a commitment that if, if in the event of future aggression against Ukraine, we will come to its defense. Um, and this is a real sticking point for Ukraine, I think, understandably, because, you know, their experience in 2014 is um, when Russia comes and conquers part of your territory, uh, you know, there's a very good chance that they're going to build up their forces over a period of years and come and conquer more of your territory. And if you do concede the Donbass and move the border uh, between Russia, you know, and, you know, the Ukrainian capital closer, you move that, that border westward, if you make peace after Russia has decimated the Ukrainian military industrial base, um, you, you're kind of setting yourself up potentially to be reinvaded within a few years. Um, and that is, you know, it's already a difficult challenge that Zelensky has selling concessions to the Ukrainian people in terms of territory, especially. Um, and so it, it, it's been really emphasized that um, the way that he believes he can sell that is with pairing this, okay, we give this up, but that's the end of it. We have these security guarantees that ensure that Russia is not going to reinvade. Um, so that seems like critical to a deal, uh, yet it also effectively means the U.S. committing to confrontation with a nuclear superpower um, in the event that it invades Ukraine in the future. Um, and so I, I'm wondering, you know, whether whether Bronco supports the the extension of such security guarantees, um, and, and if not, uh, you know, how do we imagine, um, you know, peace uh, and an agreement being reached here? Because I, I have trouble seeing it. Yeah, well, first of all, let me uh, deal with the, with the 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 some of the points brought up yeah. about on the far right. Um, for one, uh, you know, I mentioned the the Maidan revolution, where the far right were using kind of hunting rifles and other kind of you know, relatively low level weapons. I mentioned uh, the incident inside of the Ukrainian parliament where uh, they, you know, grenades were thrown or a grenade was thrown. Now imagine if those confrontations, instead of, you know, those weapons, you had, you know, militias armed with, with actual, you know, assault rifles and grenade launchers and, and missiles. I mean, I think this is what we have to, and, and, and copious grenades. Uh, you know, as far as whether Azov is eliminated, I have no idea because, you know, there's a lot of stuff that, that is just said out there about this war and it doesn't end up coming true. Uh, that may well be true, but the Azov Regiment was part of a wider movement. Um, the Azov Regiment was the only far-right militia integrated into the Ukrainian National Guard. 
Um, but it's not the only far right militia out there, and nor, nor is it the, the sort of the, the, the be all and end all of the, the wider Azov movement. There are others out there. In terms of uh, the, if the state could, in, in a bit of um, uh, putting down or cracking down on these uh, groups, uh, you know, I, I, there's really serious reasons to doubt that. Uh, for one, I mean, the fact that that the the Azov regiment were brought into the actual official security forces of Ukraine gives you a hint about how the the, the members of the Ukrainian government, not all of them but are not necessarily unsympathetic to some of these far-right groups, or at the very least, they see them as being able to control them. The, the, the interior minister, uh, Arsen Avakov, he was the one who brought them in because he was kind of allied with them, and he believed that they were kind of the key to his political rise. Uh, there has been reports for a long time in Ukraine that, that when far-right groups attack uh, LGBTQ protests, you know, the Roma people, others, when they, when they disrupt city council meetings, or they attack left-wing uh, organizing meetings, so on and so forth. Uh, the police don't end up doing anything. And, and one thing to note is that pre-war, there were members, there were ultra-nationalists who were part of the Ukrainian police hierarchy in key posts. Um, but police didn't always actually end up arresting or doing anything to the far-right militias. They uh, sometimes would actually arrest the people being attacked. Um, so, you know, it, it's not... I don't think it's quite as simple as thinking, well, now that there's more guns in Ukraine, and a lot of those guns, Ukraine is one of the, the, the biggest arms trafficking black holes in, in, in Europe. Uh, so those guns that have just been sent in there, um, you know, a lot of them are going to disappear uh, and, and end up somewhere else in the hands of other people. Also, the fact that Zelensky himself said, you know, I'm giving guns to every man, woman, and child who wants to fight, uh, doesn't exactly suggest that they have been kind of you know, they're doing background checks on every single person before they hand out some of these things. So I think all that's worth um, remembering. I think it's also worth remembering that the U.S. in sending these weapons and, and, and basically urging other countries or goading other countries to do the same, it's not doing it with the aim of, 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 of allowing Ukraine to win. It, this, the explicit aim, and, and one of my big disagreements with Eric's piece is he treats this as a kind of hypothetical, as a kind of a trick for, I guess, myself or, or people on the left to kind of avoid dealing with some of the messy realities of, of, of the war. But in fact, it's it's not a hypothetical. This is a real strategy that is, is actually existing um, among U.S. officials. They want to turn Ukraine into what Afghanistan was for the Soviets in the 80s, what, the, what Vietnam was for the United States uh, in the 60s and 70s. They want, they, they couldn't care less. I'm, I'm very sorry to tell everyone, but but the people in the Biden administration could not care less about Ukrainians. What they want is uh, they want to draw Russia into a protracted conflict that even if Russia has a superior military force, if they are constantly having people being killed by a guerrilla insurgency that lasts years and years and years, um, that hopefully will end up destabilizing the country or weaken it so that they can then... Uh, confront China without having a, a united Russian and Chinese front. And I think also potentially, you know, maybe not the explicit goal, although I would urge people to read the, the piece that, that Niall Ferguson wrote for Bloomberg, where he quotes a senior administration official, quote unquote, uh, explicitly saying that they, they hope that, you know, ultimately what's going to happen is Putin gets thrown out. Um, but that is also another ancillary, you know, aim of this whole thing. Um, we have to remember that the people running foreign policy, particularly in the United States, 
but in a lot of Western countries where foreign policy, the national security state is taken out of democratic hands and it's basically just decided on by a, a small elite in, in rooms, they have very different interests than the kind of humanitarian ones that, you know, quite justifiably animate all of us here. And I think most ordinary people, they have, they, they have something else going. And I think at this point, you know, if you read the reporting since December, if you read there was that David Sanger piece in the New York Times uh, last week, it, it, I think it's not really tenable to say that, the, that this is just a hypothetical, that the U.S. isn't explicitly trying to make this happen. Now, what could be done instead? My preference is not to have, you know, Russia lording over a puppet regime in, in Kiev. I don't think that's anyone's preference. Uh, but again, because of the real dangers of just sending arms into this, the, the, the potential for destabilization in the near future in Ukraine, um, we have to do something else. And, and the thing that I have put forward, the thing that others keep calling for, including Zelensky himself, is the U.S., and not just the U.S., but the U.S. needs to enter these negotiations. Unless we basically just go for the complete destruction of Ukraine, uh, this war, like every war, is going to end with people in a room across a table from each other talking. Uh, and that is happening now between Russia and Ukraine, but it is not happening with U.S. officials. And that's a mistake both, A, because U.S. officials, whatever you think about the sanctions, they've, they've imposed the sanctions. They are the ones who control the lever there. They're also, even though they're not directly uh, fighting, even though the Washington is not directly fighting this war, uh, they are militarily intervening in the country. And so they should be party to these negotiations, as should NATO. Because if you are going to create some sort of stable security arrangement, I don't know what exactly that would look like, but if you're going to uh, create one, you have to have uh, those countries there, you know, negotiating and talking about what that actually looks like. I think also China should enter. China's not involved in this war as the US and NATO are, but China is sticking by its, its kind of alliance, friendship, whatever you want to call it, with Russia. Um, it is kind of the larger, in the same way that the US is the larger power behind NATO, China is kind of the larger power behind Russia. It makes sense for them to come in and to be able to sort of broker some sort of deal. In terms of the specifics of that, you know, I, I cannot tell you what a, a, a at least off the cuff here, what a, a stable security arrangement is going to look like. That's going to be something that, that has to be decided by all those people in a room figuring out something that, that works for everyone. Um, but I think that's what needs to be done. I, there, there is no real, uh, unfortunately, no real pressure on the Biden administration to to come into these negotiations at all. Uh, the, the media is either, why aren't you implementing a no-fly zone? Uh, are you, <laughs> were you too quick to rule out World War Three? Were you too quick to rule out nuclear holocaust? Uh, or, or, you know, it's, it's the kind of more soft military intervention that's send weapons in. Um, I think there needs to be far more of a stress on, on diplomacy. I'm not the only one, you know, veteran diplomats and, and other foreign policy experts are out there. They've been saying this for a while. You know, the only way this is going to end is through a settlement. The U.S. should enter these negotiations. Um, so, you know, I think uh, in terms of, Again, what a security arrangement looks like uh, post-fact, whether I'd be comfortable with, with the United States um, coming in to fight uh, on, on behalf of Ukraine if Russia invaded again. Um, I think that would be quite dangerous and, and, and potentially very disastrous. Um, I don't know if that's the security arrangement that has to be done. Uh, there, there's, uh, uh, you know, for instance, uh, Vladimir Yashchenko, he's a Ukrainian analyst, and, and he's not the only one. They've suggested what about, you know, speeding up Ukraine's uh, entry into the EU 
give Zelensky some sort of um, win that he can point to to his own population. Uh, and of course, that would have to be paired with uh, with with you know a lot of economic aid and not not IMF loans, not payday loans, basically to to, to um, bleed uh, Ukraine uh, the Ukrainian population, but rather actual economic aid that that rebuilds it in the same way that that you know Germany was rebuilt after the, after the um, uh, Second World War. Um, so that's sort of my those are my my response, I guess, to to what Eric was saying. Yeah, I just want to say that I. Uh agree with, um, I mean, you know, if I uh, had the power, the United States would delegate the authority to, um, or, or rather the the West more broadly, um, would delegate the authority to lift sanctions to the Zelensky government in, in negotiations. Um, I do think that there is more that the U.S. could be doing um, to abet a, a peace agreement. And I, I, you know, would agree that uh, the responsibility of, of American uh, Americans in general and the American left in particular is to pressure our government to do what is uh, conducive um, to peace. I, I do think that, you know, to be effective in that role requires, you know, really trying to uh, navigate and engage with where mainstream opinion is um, and, and, and recognize, you know, sort of these complexities that I have been pointing to. Um, I think that uh I will say that I just regarded um, the idea of the U.S. turning Ukraine into Afghanistan as a hypothetical in the sense that that Kiev's fall and what the U.S. should do in the event that um, that 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 we're arming an insurgency is the opposition to uh, Russia and Ukraine rather than the sovereign government remains a hypothetical scenario. I do think that U.S. policy was preparing for that uh, because, as uh, Bronco suggested, uh, the, the Pentagon. Um, did not think that that Ukraine was going to hold out as well as it did. Um, I, I I agree that that the U.S. you know its uh, imperative is not the well-being of the Ukrainian people and um, you know its uh, lack of concern in that regard um, you know has helped to has contributed uh, you know to a degree that it's impossible for us to determine because of what we don't know, but but seems to me to have contributed uh, to the disaster that we currently have. Um, at the same time, you know, I think that it was just, a, it was just not within the last decade, the U.S. was looking to have a reset with Russia so as to counterbalance against China. Um, you know, it's not generally as a part of America's broad grand strategy. Um, opposition to Russia is not, you know, the, the central goal there. And that opposition has fundamentally in in my view, um, become more prominent uh, due to Russia's own decision to begin, um, you know, to to respond to, uh, you know, the Maidan with an invasion uh, of Ukraine, and that that is sort of what has soured U.S.-Russia relations to the point where, um, you know, we're now at at, at this juncture, um, and so it is not clear to me to what extent the U.S. is. Uh, affirmative policy goal at this point is to um, fight Russia to the last Ukrainian, to bleed out uh, Russia's resources. Um, and to what extent that was sort of the game plan when the presumption was that Ukraine, the Ukrainian government was going to fall. Um, and now it's sort of in this more ambiguous territory because the U.S. is confronting a situation that it did not anticipate. 
Um, but, uh, but, you know, Bronco's point that the, the U.S. security state's uh, motives are not uh, purely humanitarian is, is certainly well taken. Um, yeah. So uh, I'm to offer a question that maybe pivots and wraps up the conversation. Uh, it seems like there's two things going on. On the one hand, uh, a lot of what you guys have been talking about so far is dealing with getting an accurate analysis of the situation, of the interests involved, uh, so that we can get a better sense of the possible outcomes. Um, but then there's also, you know, this question of what the left's response should be to what's going on. Um, that it seems like the debate really started with what the left's response should be so far. Um, and that's how I've understood why you both have been discussing what's actually been going on. That it should be informed. The our, our actual response should be informed by what's going on. But as we all know, the American left is virtually powerless. Uh, you know, we do some ideological prodding and poking here and there, but the world really isn't made up of good ideas. It's made up of power. Uh, so the left doesn't really influence what's going on in any major way. Uh, maybe a different way to put that is that the elites of the world, the various ruling classes, the American ruling class, the Western ruling classes, the Russian ruling class, the Chinese ruling class, they're all going to find solutions uh, to this situation and others that fit more or less within their interests. Um, so is the point of this debate that we're having to, is it on the one hand, what is a better left strategy to influence the outcome of the war? Or is it, you know, on the other hand, is it, how do we have a greater understanding of these social dynamics of war, of sovereignty, et cetera, um, how to resolve these conflicts so that if the left is in a position of power, we can have better political solutions that lead to more democratic and egalitarian outcomes? Uh, I'll, I'll go first. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think both. Uh, I think on the one hand, I think uh, one day, God willing, the left will have more power in, in this country and, and, and everywhere around the world. And these are thorny questions that we'll have to confront. And when we make the decisions that we make, uh, they'll actually matter. Uh, instead of just sort of being a theoretical thing. And I think it is worth um, thinking about this issue. You know, I, I understand this, the, 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 the drive to, you know, we want to, to help them militarily. There's a, there's a sovereign country that's being invaded by a larger neighbor. The stuff we're seeing is, is, is horrendous, of course. You know, that you would not be a human being if you didn't have that response. Um, but the, this, is, this has always been the trouble with, with liberal interventionism, which is it's driven by emotion and not always driven by thinking about the practicalities on the ground. And that we saw so many times this has, has led to disaster. The Libya uh, misadventure is, is one of the clearest cases, um, yeah, but you could, go, you could go through so many others. Um, so I think, you know, it, it, as I said in the piece, I don't believe in pacifism in every single instance, no matter what. However, I am very keenly aware of both because of the realities of Ukraine, which most people are very uninformed about. They, they just have a very surface level, good guy versus bad guy idea of what's going on over there. Because people are, uh, you know, not, not because of the realities of Ukraine, but also because of the very well-documented history of how military solutions like sending military uh, aid, like sending weapons and self so forth into a country can lead to long-term consequences. I, uh, I oppose it here. And I think this is the kind of analysis that the left should bring, you know, when God willing they have power sometime in the future. Um, beyond that, I mean, you know, I, as a journalist, obviously I, I write for people who are 
uh, you know, lean politically in a certain direction. But I try, I, I hope that to some extent, you know, what I put out there has a bit more of an influence than some of the discourse. As I said, right now, the the the, the entire pressure on the Biden administration is just to do more militarily. There's absolutely no, uh, the stuff I'm saying and the stuff some of the other, uh, you know, left commentators that, that, that Eric uh, point to us saying gets almost next to really next to no uh, uh, purchase at all uh, in, in mainstream discourse. And I think that's kind of dangerous uh, because if the only pressure is for uh, the US to get more and more military involved to draw red lines, um, then, you know, it's going to bend to that pressure. I, I would hope that, you know, there are other commentators, there are other people, if they are interested in helping Ukraine, um, you know, they, they, Rather than going to protests where they're calling for a no-fly zone, they go to protests demand outside the White House demanding that that Biden, you know, enter the negotiations, that he do something about the ceasefire deal. Remember that in his in his State of the Union speech, there was no mention of ceasefire. And I believe he actually, whether it was in that speech or, or sometime else, he said, you know, this is going to take a long, long time. That is very worrying to me. Um, and I think the best thing. Uh, for, for Ukrainians, if we actually care about them, is not to have this be a protracted war. It should be to try and find a solution as quickly as possible. And part of that solution, I think, rests in having the U.S. into negotiations. So, you know, if anyone's listening to this, pressure your, your congressperson. Democracy is very limited in the United States. It doesn't mean it doesn't exist. It doesn't mean that popular pressure can't do anything. Um, I think that's a better use of our energies, whether you're, you know, a, a socialist, progressive, liberal, whatever. Uh, that's a bit of use of our energies um, than than just sort of calling for more uh, uh, military solutions. And also, we should transition away from fossil fuels. That's my last of all. <laughs> I mean, uh, if there's nothing else that this should teach us, it, you know, uh, we're getting a very visceral look at how if you sit on a giant reserve of oil and gas, uh, you at the very least have a, a perception of yourself as, as being able to act in a variety of kind of outrageous ways because you have this this uh, very powerful piece of leverage over the you know, the international community, quote unquote. Uh, so let's let's really use this moment to, to aggressively invest away from from um, fossil fuels and change our energy uh, system and hopefully not all uh, die in the climate apocalypse. Um, yeah, well, I, I would second uh, a lot of what. Uh... Bronco said there at the end, um, uh, you know, I, I also think that uh, it is more useful to, um, you know, I, I don't think that arming Ukraine needs any more, uh, that objective needs more uh, support than it, it already has. Um, whereas I, I think that pressure on the Biden administration to uh, not seek, uh, not encourage, not seek a, a maximalist sort of uh, agenda here, uh, but try to facilitate peace. Um, we need more voices calling for that, absolutely, as well as um, voices calling to forgive Ukraine's uh, foreign debt um, and, you know, increase refugee admissions. Um, I think that's, you know, the left's role is in, in the current context, I think, is primarily to agitate for those things. I think that, you know, it's just important, given the opinion climate that we have, um, you know, to, to really take seriously majoritarian sentiment on other aspects of the conflict in order for arguments along those lines um, to be uh, to be to be heard um, and, and received uh, with, with open minds um, as far as you know 
I, I, as far as you know, does, does any of this stuff that we we do matter, or you know, uh, are we just people who like to think about the world and argue, and so we do that, and we found a way to get paid a little bit for it, and uh, you know, um, I think we all probably have that existential uh, whatever uh, moment of the soul, but but I I do think that um, like you know, it, it is a fact that uh, Joe uh, Biden, um, no one's idea, at least. Uh, a few years ago, um, of a, a you know dove uh, withdrew U.S. forces from Afghanistan, um, and in fact, the last two U.S. presidents, uh, really the last three, were elected on um, kind of anti-interventionist platforms. Uh, I don't think that you know one can credit the left in the broadest sense for that um, exclusively, let alone the left in the the narrow sense of the socialist left. Nonetheless, I, I think that. Um, there was a real role played there. And, you know, the fact is that the people who staff the Biden administration, increasingly the rising generation of them, um, are, you know, overlapping. Their media ecosystem and media diet overlaps with that of the left's, and they do uh, uh, confront these arguments. And I do think there is a broad, uh, you know, in addition to the funding of institutions, you know, like the Quincy Institute or whatever, um, there are new, there are more non-interventionist voices um, that, that 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 have an ear uh, in, you know, the Democratic Party and uh, perhaps maybe uh, I'm, I'm skeptical, but perhaps the you know post-Trump Republican Party. Um, uh, so you know, I, I don't think it's it's all totally pointless. I think that the, the discourse there is a little bit of sort of elite suasion that that can be done. Um, within certain, you know, very limited bounds. Um, and then, you know, besides that, I think just, yeah, just, you know, the, the, just sharpening the left sort of internal sort of intellectual uh, strength and, and health is a is a goal in itself, um, you know, especially since I, I think that it really is a very difficult uh, and unintuitive landscape that we confront right now. There is no international socialist or workers' movement with any significant power, there isn't a, um, you know, the, the, the chief rivals to American imperial power are both, you know, fundamentally they're state capitalist. Uh, they are, if anything, more hostile to organized labor than the United States. Um, you know, so that it's just not obvious what the left, what the position in many of these emerging conflicts that are going to define, uh, you know, the next few decades. Uh, it's not going to be intuitive to people who broadly sympathize with the left, what, where their values um, are supposed to bring them in those conflicts. And I think it's just important to have a really sort of open and vigorous debate about that stuff uh, so that we have both clear thinking and, um, and sharp arguments, uh, you know, even when we internally disagree. Okay, well, uh, I think we can probably end it there. Thank you both to Eric Levitz and to Branko Markatich. Uh, probably two of our finest and most insightful journalists working today. Yep. So thank you. Uh, thank you yeah. both for your time. And on that note, we're going to pivot again and uh, hear a word from our sponsor, Versa Books. Join the Versa Book Club and get every new ebook that Versa publishes every month, as well as one to three books in the mail. All Versa Book Club members also get 50% off everything on the website. The Comrade tier is only $20 a month for your first three months, and if you join in March, you'll get these books. 
Feminism or Death, How the Women's Movement Can Save the Planet by Francois Deobon, a new edition of a classic work of French feminist theory. Mistaken Identity, Race and Class in the Age of Trump by Assad Haider, a challenge to the way we understand the politics of race and the history of anti-racist struggle. The Politics of Immunity, Security and the Policing of Bodies by Mark Neocleus, an intellectual history that exposes the politics underpinning the way immunity is imagined. And the Benjamin Files by Frederick Jameson, the paperback edition of this comprehensive exploration of all of Benjamin's major works. Become a member today at versobooks.com. Hi, everybody. Uh, so my name is Jeremy Cohen, and I'll be moderating this very special episode of The Jacobin Show today. Um, we are privileged, honored to have with us two of the left's most important thinkers um, to speak uh, on the important question of ideology and culture and what role these things play in the structure of capitalism, in working class organizing, and in left-wing politics today. So first of all, I'm honored to introduce uh, Slavoj Žižek. Um, he's a philosopher, probably people know him, but I'll say um, he's a philosopher and critic whose work has covered everything from continental philosophy to psychoanalysis to Marxism. Um, he's published over 50 books from his uh, first, The Sublime Object of Ideology, which meant a lot to me in college uh, when it helped cure me of postmodernism, I used to say. Um, and uh, two, I think three recent volumes on the pandemic. Um, and he's also been the subject of a number of films. Uh, Zizek also holds many titles at many universities, including the University of Ljubljana, the University of London, Kyunghee University, and New York University. Um, second of all, we're joined by Vivek Chibber, um, actually really the guest of honor today um, in celebration for his new book, The Class Matrix, uh, Social Theory After the Cultural Turn, um, which we'll be discussing. Um, Vivek is the editor of Catalyst Journal, and professor of sociology at New York University. Um, he's the author of a number of books, including Locked in Place on uh, and uh, Postcolonial Theory and the Specter of Capital. Um, and again, today we'll be talking about his new work, which uh, asks us to profoundly reconsider the role of ideology in social relations in capitalist society and kind of move past both uh, take in certain arguments from the cultural turn, but also move past them. So briefly, an introduction about the class matrix for those who haven't had a chance to read it yet. Um, you should get it. You should read it. Um, uh, a major focus of Vivek's book is explaining what um, produces stability within capitalist societies. This comes out of the puzzle of why a system that is so racked by conflict has remained in place for several centuries and now rules the globe. Um, if this is, as left-wingers think it is, a world that's organized along unjust and exploitative lines, why is it that rebellions are breaking out sort of everywhere all of the time? Um, a classical sort of answer the left has provided, um, especially, we might say, in the Western Marxist tradition to this question, to the sort of failure of revolutions, even in um, uh, profoundly capitalist societies that seem in so many other ways to fit Marx's picture of where society was going, a classic kind of answer to this question is that culture and ideology, uh, maybe even direct ideological indoctrination um, to the values of the system have helped keep the system in place. Um, Vivek's argument 
contests that claim and thereby goes against the current of a lot of social theory. So he's going to lay out that argument regarding the role ideology does and does not play in the process of capitalist stability for about 10 minutes. And then Slavoj will get a chance to respond before we open up a larger discussion. And I'll throw a few questions in the mix as we go. Let let me uh, start with uh, the puzzle that that Jeremy raised, uh, which is the central puzzle that uh, the book tries to deal with, which is how is a system like capitalism, which is at its root, based on domination and exploitation, how is it still around after so many centuries? The classic Marxist tradition addressed this question over and over and over again. At the heart of the Marxist uh, theoretical framework, of course, is an approach called materialism. And materialism has several different dimensions to it, but at the core of it is the idea that people, when they pursue their politics or their economic uh, goals, they are basically guided by what's called their interests. So at the heart of materialism, social materialism is a doctrine that social action is governed by people's material interests. So in the, the, the gamut of Marxist history, the assumption was that when you pose a question like how does capitalism remain stable, how do class actors uh, interact with each other and engage the world, there was an assumption that the answer would be a materialist answer. It has something to do with their interests. In the decades after the Second World War, materialism became overshadowed by an approach which promoted and emphasized the role of culture and the role of ideology. Because in the post-war left, starting with the early new left, of people like Stuart Hall and E.P. Thompson and Raymond Williams and people around the New Left Review, there was this conviction that Marxists had not taken ideology seriously enough. And so the, many of the puzzles for Marxist theory would be answered by looking at ideology. Now, why did they think that? It was because they were motivated by this very question that we're trying to answer today. Why does the system remain stable? The question arose because in the teens and 20s and 30s, it seemed like Marx's prediction that capitalism produces its own grave diggers and they'll overthrow the system. It seemed like that prediction was coming true. But by 1950, it was clear that in the West, you'd entered a period of political and social stability. So how did a system that was supposed to have been overthrown by the exploited class, in fact, end up remaining stable over time? That was the question that the Western European New Left posed for itself. And the worry that they had was this, that we know that the structure of the system generates conflict, that the structure of the system is built around exploitation. The problem is that that structure is not generating the kind of social action that it was supposed to, which is a social action of the workers organizing themselves and fighting around their interests. So they accepted the description of the class structure. What they were worried about was that the predictions about the political consequences of the class structure were mistaken. So the puzzle became, could there be an intervening factor between the class structure and political consciousness, political action that disrupts and interrupts the predicted causal flow, the predicted consequences of the structure on action. And the immediate answer was, well, it has to be ideology. It must be culture. 
starting with the Frankfurt School all the way into the Gramscians of the 1970s, what held all of them together was this notion that Marxists have overlooked the way in which cultural hegemony, cultural influence, the, the media industry affects workers' consciousness. And that was an elevated to an even larger question, which is Marxists have overlooked the role of what's called the superstructure. So if you look at the intellectual history of much of the new left, it is its single most important focus is culture. Its single most important focus is what's called the superstructure, things like that. And it's considered a theoretical advance to focus on that because this is the gaping black hole inside Marxist theory. Okay, so now what I argue in my book is that this is profoundly flawed. And it's profoundly flawed for the following reason. The new left was stuck with this very awkward view that they accepted Marxist description of how workers confront capital and what the experience of labor is in capitalism. They accepted it, which was workers are dominated by their employers, they're exploited by them, they lose their autonomy, their wages are suppressed, they're treated to horrible working conditions, the, there's a loss of control over their lives outside of the workplace, they accept all this. But then they ask, why doesn't this turn into a political consciousness? And they say, it's because workers are essentially socialized by ideology into accepting their place. Now, the difficulty with this view is, you have to answer, how is it that the people who are undergoing these experiences somehow are simply by the force of ideology, the force of socialization, taught or persuaded to overlook their exploitation, to overlook their domination and accept their place in the system. Underneath it has to be a view that the workers are dupes or that they're irrational or that they suffer from cognitive failure. And in my view, this is a deep problem inside the entire framework of the new left. They accept the description of the class structure, but then they refuse to consider the fact that workers might have good reasons not to organize, good reasons not to rebel, good reasons not to come together, and therefore either assume directly or imply that the workers are in some way cognitively deficient. So what I try to do in this book is to say, assume for a second that workers are reasonable, that they have a pretty good understanding of their, their surroundings. Could we answer the question of why they don't rebel if we work on these assumptions? And what I provide is an answer that the reason capitalism is stabilized in the post-war era is not because workers are fooled by ideology, but because the class structure, in addition to generating a conflict between workers and capitalists, has one more property, which is that it channels that conflict into manageable directions for capital. What work, Marx was right, as was Lenin, as was Luxembourg, in saying that the class structure is built on exploitation and generates conflict between workers and capital. Where they did not sufficiently theorize was that the, the conflict does not have to take the form of collective action. They wrongly assumed that the conflict will take the form of workers coming together. In fact, what the class structure does is because it makes collective action, organizing, making unions so difficult imposing all these risks and all these costs onto workers, work, workers find it prudent and rational to resist on an individualistic basis rather than take up all the risks of organizing themselves. Organizing, therefore, is not the natural consequence of exploitation and domination. 
it is an exceptional consequence. And it comes about in very particular circumstances through very particular work. The baseline reality of capitalism is that workers resist through individualistic means, not through collective means. But once you say that they resist individually, they will lose. They resist, but they lose because, they, of course, their employer is the much stronger party. So the secret to capitalism is while it generates conflict, it also underwrites its own stability by channeling that conflict into manageable ends. Ideology, therefore, was wrongly inflated by the new left as the source of stability. The source of stability is the class structure itself. And this is why they have this amazing fact that wherever capitalism has gone, into so many cultures, into so many regions, into so many ideological complexes, collective action has been the exception, not the norm. That means then that it has a way of stabilizing itself wherever it goes. Well, what is the common factor wherever it goes? The class structure. It is a material property of the class structure to generate stability by raising the costs of collective action. This means that the, the fundamental flaw of the new left was this. They, were correct, they correctly understood that the class structure generates antagonism, but they wrongly attributed to ideology the role of stability. The class structure does both. They, the problem with Marx and Lenin was that they didn't sufficiently develop the implications of their own materialism. They knew what I'm saying to be true. You see it implicit in their writings, but they didn't raise it to the level of theory. When the new left encountered this dilemma and tried to raise it to the level of theory, they wrongly reached for ideology. All right, now if it's the case that ideology does not, is not the source of stability, but the source of stability is the economic and material constraints that workers face, is there any role of ideology at all? I say yes, there are two roles. In the stabilizing dynamic of, of capitalism, ideology plays the role of rationalizing workers and capitalists' actions. So the new left thought ideology becomes the motivating factor. It motivates workers not to rebel. It motivates workers not to organize. In my view, what the motivating factor in stability is the economic and social circumstances and constraints that workers feel. What motivates them is a prudent, rational response to their circumstances. What ideology does is that it helps them live with the choices they've made. They make the choices based on economic and material considerations, but those choices that are then rationalized and understood and interpreted by them through ideology. So ideology is in a way the cement, the glue that fills in the holes where the material constraints of workers are doing the deeper work, the more fundamental work when it comes to stability. The second role it plays, and this is, I flip the new left and the culturalists on, its, on their head. Whereas they thought ideology is important in stabilizing the system, in my view, ideology is important in generating the destabilizing factors which is when workers try to organize themselves and try to create collective organizations, ideology is what enables them to undertake the sacrifices, to undertake the risks, to undertake all the heavy lifting they have to do because it generates what we might call a kind of collective identity. That collective identity, what we call solidarity or solidarism, is, cannot be 
brought about simply through risk minimizing or, uh, or benefit maximizing calculations, it's going to require real ideological work. So the role of ideology is not so much that it stabilizes the system. The stabilization comes from the material circumstances of workers. The role of ideology is that it's part of the arsenal of the working class of socialist parties to generate the social political identities that help workers overcome a lot of the obstacles to collective action and help them willingly take up the sacrifices that are inevitable in any collective struggle. Ideology, therefore, has two roles. It is the means through which workers and capitalists rationalize their entrapment within the structure. Capitalists rationalize it as well. They have their own ideological functions, their own ideological uh, uh, justifications for why they brutalize people, why they do what they do. The second role that ideology plays is that it is an essential component of the organizing tools, the organizing kits that socialists and unions have for generating the identities that are essential to class mobilization. So what I'm trying to do in this book is, on the one hand, restore the materialism that is essential to Marxist sociology, to Marxist social theory, which says that social formations come and go based on their, the material considerations of the classes, not through ideology per se. Every social formation is rooted in a class structure which is important because of the way it generates class capacities and class interests. So I've restored interests to the core of the, the social theory that Marx has had. But then I don't erase the importance of ideology, I just reassign it. In stability, stabilizing capitalism, it's a secondary factor because it provides rationalizations. In mobilizing workers, it is a crucial factor because it helps generate political identities. So whereas the new left thought ideology stabilizes the system, in my view, ideology is part of the destabilizing package of collective struggles. That's the, in, in, in very cond condensed form, that's the theory. Uh, thanks very much. And again, although I'm often identified as a, in my style, crazy postmodern guy who includes dirty jokes, jumps here and there, I try not to be, I try to, I often fail, write and talk like Vivek. Because I know that there are many so-called postmodern Marxists, and one of them even gave me the most disgusting pseudo-Hegelian justification of it. I told him, but you are inconsistent. It's not clear what you want to say. You know what was the answer I got? This inconsistency is in reality itself. So precisely through being inconsistent and self-contradictory, I give the adequate image of reality, blah, blah, blah. So let me just improvise a couple of points. You, Vivek, wonderfully pointed out how the great classics, uh, Marx, Lenin, and so on, uh, it's not simply that they didn't see what you, Vivek, were saying about in their political practice, even in their descriptions. They like uh, smelled it, but something was missing in poor conceptualization. And that's, again, what I think about your Vivek, your work. We were all, many of us, 
who are all bothered by the same problem. What's the deep shit we are in? What's wrong? Why action doesn't happen? We smelled it, knew it. But, you know, here I am a materialist Christian in the sense of the word is logos is not at the beginning, but at the end. At the beginning, it's a mess. Then somebody here, Judith Vivek, has to say the word, has to clearly formulate it. And all of a sudden, even if you don't agree with everything, but you know the proper terrain is formulated. So first, let me begin by a self-critical remark for somebody who is perceived as Lacanian, psychoanalytic, Marxist, whatever. I think, and this was even my founding experience, if I may permit myself this new age term, that uh, uh, psychoanalysis was often unfortunately used in the Western Marxist tradition exactly in the way you, Vivek, describe the reference to ideology. It was Marxist economic analysis is correct and so on, blah, blah, but there is no revolution, no collective organization. So not even ideology. They claimed, ah, psychoanalysis will give the answer. And then you evoke all the obscurity of, you know, death drive, perversion, and so ever, as if we will get the answer there. That's where, that's the temptation we should absolutely resist. And uh, let me give you an example. Allow me to make a couple of points. That's my first point of this, what you Vivek called the materialism. I think that... Uh, for me, the formative experience was not mine. I was happy to have a permanent state job, academic, but my experience with precarious workers, like it was in London, of all places, that a couple of times I, I don't like Uber, they exploit workers too much, but how does Uber exploit workers? in a way which, not as an ideal force up there, but in their very material experience of work, in some sense, it makes them feel free, not only free, but even small entrepreneurs of their own. Uh, an Uber guy told me, listen, it's wonderful. I, there is no capitalist exploitation, I, he even knew about Marxism. He says, you see, I own my own means of production, my car, so nobody is exploiting me. The company is just providing to me the general frame. And I work when I want to work in my conditions in this sense and so on and so on. And then I failed, but I engaged in a debate with a guy because I tried to tell him but do you know to what extent like your long-term perspectives are uncertain? You don't have 
healthcare, security, and all other stuff. And he was aware of it, but he said, and I am now doing pretty well. I don't care about that. And he wasn't stupid. I understood him. In a way, he lived relatively well. He said, if I want, I take a weekend off. I work when I want. Another thing, and here I come back to your point, Vivek, is that I told him, but are you aware that in, instead of experiencing your situation like we all Uber drivers against the company, Uber, their, blah, blah, your, you perceive your competitors as the other Uber drivers. You know, the very form of this Uber precarious work in its materiality, not in some complex uh, collective psychology level, prevents uh, solidarity. Because again, it, in your material everyday life, your company, which is really reaping the profit, appears innocent. Oh, they're just organizing it. And the bad guys are your co-workers, precisely. So here I see a simple situation where without any big, uh, deep psychology notions or whatever, you can see how, in this specific case, how the very material organization of precarious work in the sense of Uber driving prevents social solidarity and especially important since we live in an era where fetishism of choice is almost the main choice, you know, even if choices are vacuous. What are our choices, even in politics? Mostly they are like, you know, Pepsi-Cola or Coca-Cola and that type of stuff, you know. But, uh, uh, but uh, uh, the point is that uh, they make you experience, but again, in your concrete material life circumstances, they make you experience as a free agent, a small entrepreneur of the self, because again, that's the big category of today's capitalism. Uh, the idea is, and again, I read it in a materialist way, in vivex sense. It's not something preached out. It's that's the big. Can I just say one thing, uh, Slavoj? Let me say one thing, please. Uh, taking Uber as an example, my my view, my general approach which I think is the approach socialists used for more than a century, yeah. is that you start on the assumption that workers have a pretty good understanding of their working conditions. They're not fooled by it. They're not duped by it. So let's, let's yeah. look at Uber. Okay, Uber drivers are exploited in some way. They are part of the working class in some way. Uh, but then they have this feeling, as you said, that, look, I'm my own boss. Yeah, yeah. Now, is that a mistake? Well, it's not in the following way yeah, yeah, yeah. that they are capturing accurately a dimension of their laboring experience because they are, in fact, in a labor process where they have a great deal of autonomy from managerial control compared to 
somebody in a Walmart or an Amazon warehouse or in a factory or in a fast food restaurant. Now, this has been true throughout the history of capitalism. Workers, Uber drivers are sort of like owner operators or like farmers, independent farmers who um, sell their products to a marketing board or to a merchant who then exploits them through manipulating prices. If you asked a worker throughout the history of capitalism, we will give you a choice. You can work in a factory where there's an overseer bossing you around every minute of the day, or you can work at home or drive your own rickshaw or drive your own bicycle or drive your own taxi. You'll still be subject to some controls, but it'll be a different kind of control. Which of these two would you like? They have always preferred some degree of independent control, control over their own labor. So what's distinguishing the Uber driver from a factory worker is what we call the labor process, the facts about the labor process. And when he says to an intellectual, hey, I'm, I'm much more free here, a lot of intellectuals will then try to convince him that he's not. But he in fact is. He is driving the car and he'd much rather be driving the car than being bent over a production line m manipulating physical objects. But those same Uber drivers today, in fact, are trying to organize. This is true across the capitalist world. There is a growing wave of organizing drive amongst Uber drivers, which means they are aware of the fact that they have some autonomy and they are aware of the fact that their bosses, Uber or whatever company it is, is taking a very large cut of the money that they're making and, in fact, is subjecting them to all sorts of other kinds of liabilities and injustices. So both facts are true. And they, there's nothing that the Uber drivers, that we're going to tell the Uber drivers, as, I, as we are highfalutin intellectuals, that they don't already know. Now, why is their organizing having experiencing such mixed success? It's for the reason Savoy says. They are workers, but they're atomized. They don't interact with other workers. They only see them for five minutes, 10 minutes. And in fact, they might even be competing with those workers in many ways, you know, which is kind of true in capitalism generally. I mean, maybe you don't see them at all, right? There's not, exactly. there's not like a haul like there would be if you're a taxi cab driver. So when you do an analysis of Uber and you try to ask two questions, why has there been less organizing amongst Uber drivers than other kinds of workers? And then why is the organizing when it happens somewhat less successful? <laughs> It's all material and social factors. It's not ideology. The material and social factors are doing all the work of explaining it here. What the role of ideology is that they need to be able to generate a collective identity so that they can make their drive successful. But it's the material and social factors that explain why generating the identity is so difficult for the reasons you just said. They don't see each other. They compete with each other. They have all sorts of other constraints. So from an organizer, from a socialist standpoint, even something like Uber, the, the basic facts about their subordination and their organizing are all structurally explained. You don't have to resort to ideology to explain any of them. And their own perceptions are quite accurate. But Vivek, just really briefly on that, um, I mean, couldn't an organizer sometimes use shorthand like, hey, don't be a dope, like the boss is really... You know, the the boss wants you to think that you're free, but really, like, look at it. How much do you get to determine? But like, the key point is this. When you say to him, the boss wants you to think you're free, but you're not, for your discourse, for your argument to be successful, 
you have to point to actual facts about their laboring conditions and their laboring experience, which means that you have to respect their knowledge. You cannot treat them as people who don't understand their circumstances. What you're doing is highlighting some circumstances over others. Now, but for the organizer, that means the first task is not to come out of your seminar or your party training and lecture to them about the nature of the proletariat. The first task is to learn the everyday quotidian ordinary aspects of their existence, which you don't yet know. But what are you doing when you try to learn those everyday aspects of their existence? You are admitting that it's their circumstances to which they're responding and not the wrong-headed conceptions in their heads. And until you understand those circumstances, you can't organize them, which is a tacit acceptance that it is their location and the structure and the facts about the structure that explain why they're doing what they're doing and not simply phantoms in their head. I deeply agree with what Vivek, you said, you know, in what level. I think that although we were all trained by them, learned a lot from them, from Western Marxists, but especially in their extreme forms, like he's not always bad, but some of the texts by Marcuse, some speculations by Adorno and Horkheimer, you know, it's really behind it a kind of almost paranoiac theory of total manipulation. Ordinary people are totally manipulated and so on and so on. So they paint a picture which is, in a way, self-defeating. They paint a picture from which it is already clear that nothing can happen. And I don't have time to develop this, but this is a sense in which I think much of today's this predominant liberal left critical thought almost, I will be now cynical myself, uh, enjoys its defeat, enjoys painting the situation as the one of total manipulation where we cannot win and so on and so on. But let's not lose time on this. I want to go to another point which seems to me crucial. The way you, Vivek, turned around this notion of ideology. Yes, you know what's the strategy of, I don't use this term in paranoiac way, of those in power. Uh, the moment workers try to organize, okay, if I were to be official ideologist, I try to use this term in a non-paranoiac way, or propagator, uh, and you read this all the time, and Uber drivers try to organize themselves, I would tell them, but no, we live in a post-ideological world, you are anachronistic, you know, it's the... Uh, the ruling discourse, and again, I agree with you, Vivek, this is not a couple of big guys paid by I don't know whom, but this is their experience, that if you mention trade unions and so on, no, you are talking about the old industrial capitalism, we live in a different world, and so on and so on. So how the category of anachronism is uh, is uh, crucial here. Next thing, I this is not, now I come to, I don't think we have a disagreement here. 
I will try to be uh, still a materialist, but, uh, but I would say this, the, the line of reasoning, which is present by some disappointed Marxists, I wonder, Vivek, if you would also reject it like I do, is my, now I've, I have problems with him, ultra Maoist Alain Badiou, you know what is very brutally his answer to revolutionary non-activity of the working class in Western countries? In a kind of a brutal Leninist Maoist way, he says, yes, they are all from, uh, from the global perspective of the entire world, all of the Western Europe and United States is already uh, workers' aristocracy. They are already bribed, so we should simply discount them. They are no longer, and then they are involved into this. It's the worst thing. This uh, eternal, I remember it from my youth, I must be older than you, Vivek, how in 68, you know, the big problem was, yes, revolution, but who will be the subject? They, in their idealist way, wrote off the actual working class. Yeah. So then there was this search, eternal romanticizing temptation, either students, the idea was students are the truly exploited, then, and I never liked it. Did you notice how even today, the Western left is desperately searching for an idealized third world country where it's the real thing. Uh, now the thing is not, it used to be, Slavoj, uh, it was the peasantry under the influence of Maoism. The peasants were supposed to, yes. now it's the indigenous. Yeah, yeah. Intelligent colonizers always knew how to incorporate indigenous elements to make the, their system of colonization stable. For example, I know maybe you also do a little bit of, a little bit, very little bit of situation in India where, you know, there is one of the most terrifying books that I know, The Loss of Manu, I think, a systematic description of, of uh, uh, everything, even, you know, how do you make love, I love this. I know. There, there's a very good section on how to take a shit. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. They and need I think to know about them too. A, a part there on, you know, after after ejaculation, in what way do you wipe your penis, whatever, whatever. But you know what I learned then through my Indian friends in uh, 17th, 18th century, this book was half forgotten. The British colonizers resuscitated it because they got it that it's much better for the exploitation. Not, not that formula, I never liked it, that under capitalism, they all colonizers wanted us to imitate them. No, there is also a very strong uh, colonialist uh, multiculturalism, not in the authentic sense, but in the sense of 
let, let, let them have uh, let them have their own uh, culture. Slovoy, I want to go back to what you said about Bourdieu because it's very important. I don't want that point to get lost because yeah, it's yeah, a very yeah. widely held notion among the white left in Europe and the United States and some sections now of the left coming out of minorities that the working class has been bought off in the West and that it's too, um, its standards of living are too high or that it's living on the fruits of imperialism and therefore it cannot be a political agent. And it's a profoundly uh, idiotic notion because on the one hand is completely unaware of the recent history of the West And secondly, it has a ridiculous theory of imperialism, which is also completely false. Now, I, for a second, I want to set aside the issue of the theory of imperialism. Let, let's just focus on the empirical descriptive claim they're making, that the working class has been bought off or is, is too well off. These theories are promulgated, as you said, in 68, the generation of 68, that new left. Let's just examine 68 for a second. What happened in 68? 68 was the last great wave of strikes and labor uprisings in the West. Exactly at the moment that the student left is writing off the Western working class, the Western working class went into the largest wave of strikes we had seen since the 1940s. That was in the midst of the highest wages that the working class had had in the 20th century. So first of all, The idea that wage levels, rising wages, make workers conservative was blown to bits right there, right in 1968, because their wages were so, so high. Secondly, the idea that the working class is therefore too well off to do anything is also blown to bits right there in 1968. Yeah. The, the question for us is why? And I address this in my book a little bit. Why, when wages are so high? did workers organize in 68 and go into strike activity, it's because the material well-being of workers includes many things other than just wages. What was happening in the late 60s in the United States and Europe? Wages had gone up, but so had work intensification. So had the level of injuries. Work days were getting longer and longer. Unions were no longer responding. That's why so many of these strikes are what we called wildcat strikes. They were strikes that the unions had not authorized. Workers were angry, not at their just at their bosses, but also at the unions and, were ang and wanted to disrupt the unions. All of this happens in 1968 in the middle of the greatest prosperity that capitalism has ever seen and in the middle of rising standards of living if you just measure them through wages. Even at that moment, this theory was blown to bits. But now let's well, look what happened. Look what's happened in the past 30 years. The notion that the white working class has been living high on the hog or has been ha having this incredibly lavish lifestyle since the 1980s is for the left to advance such ideas is disgraceful. Not only have standards of living been stagnating, not only has the Uh, workplace conditions been getting worse. Not only has there been more and more speed up, for the first time in a century, the white working class in the United States has found its life expectancy shortening. For the first time, with all the medical advances, with all this glorious, somehow, this supposed increase in standard of living, they are dying faster than they did 10 years ago. They're in the middle of an opioid crisis where they are the level of death in this country from opium overdoses, from drug overdoses and 
There's a reason why Angus Deaton calls it debts of despair. It's coming from, on the one hand, a steady deterioration in their standards of living, and on the other, a conviction that nobody cares. Nobody gives a shit. The political parties don't care. The intelligentsia doesn't care. The media doesn't care. In fact, they're told if you're white and you're poor, you must be the biggest loser in the world because all of the imperial profits in the world come to you and you're still poor. It's all your fault. This is the reality that they face. And this is what I think finally the left is. You're right. There are a lot of sections of the left that still prefer a dark-skinned person in a hula dress as their universal subject. They still prefer that because it's exotic. But finally, there is, I think, in the United States and in some parts of Europe, a realization that white people can also be exploited. (laughs) And that the struggle for justice isn't a tribal struggle between different colored people. It's a struggle between classes. And there's multicolored people on top and multicolored ones on the bottom. This is coming around. But this view that you described accurately is repellent. This notion that the entire, the majority of the Western European population can be written off because they don't abide by some mistaken picture that the left has in its head. That left does more damage than it does good. Um, I wanted to ask, like, you know, sort of along these lines, Vivek, what you're saying is, you know, your book, I think, does a really good job at giving sort of the the negative case of why, especially when we're thinking about working people's organizing, um, there are so many obstacles that are bound up with the class structure itself that, you know, we can think very, it doesn't require a big, as, as Slavoj also said, a big complex ideological theory, big complex psychological theory. I'm curious, though, about, you know, I mean, it's interesting to write this kind of book at this time, say, in the United States context, because there are some like genuinely crazy things that people seem to believe, like, for instance, that the 2020 election was stolen or and and there is, you know, around figures like an intense um, seeming adherence to personalities on the right, etc., that relatively neglected, exploited people, like some of the people you're describing, um, are often beholden to. And obviously, there's a long history of thinking about, you know, ideology is helping to explain kind of the seeming irrationalism in the history of ideology, theory of ideology about racism. And then, you know, today in thinking about, well, why do people believe, you know, some people believe vaccines have chips in them or whatever. So I'm just curious, like, what you think about... Look, I, the, the view that I hold is not that ideology does not exist or that people's, people don't misunderstand things about the world or they, they're not misinformed. The view that I hold is quite simple, which is that the more you ask questions about people's immediate experiences, the less they're going to be fooled by ideology. So if you're, if for socialists, the first order of business was always organizing workers against their bosses, organizing workers at the workplace around their interests. Now on those issues, what are my basic interests with regard to my job conditions, my wages, the speed of work, what I need outside the workplace, I need as a working person. On those issues, you should expect workers aren't fooled. They have a pretty good understanding of what their interests are. But the more you move outside their direct experience and ask them their judgments about matters for which they need access, not to their direct experience, phenomenological experience, but to information. An example, economic policy. If you ask a worker, what are your basic needs, your economic needs, 
they're going to be pretty accurate in what they tell you. Pretty accurate as in you have no reason to misjudge what they're saying because they experience it every day. They know that if I don't have a good enough wage, I can't buy food. They know that if I don't have some sort of limit to the working day, I'm working myself to death. They know that if I don't have some sort of childcare, we have very difficult decisions in our family about who's going to stay at home and take care of the child. They know these things. They will have a pretty good understanding of them. Now you ask them, what kinds of economic policies can make it better on these very dimensions for you? What policies will help you hold on to your job? What policies will help you um, have rising higher wages? What are they supposed to tell you? On that, they have no direct experience. They have to rely on the views of experts. Now ask them, what kinds of policies, do, what, what do you think went down in this election? Do you think it was a fair election? Were the votes counted fairly? They don't know. For these sorts of things, the last two policies, what happened in the election, they have to rely on information that other parties are giving them. And that information can be manipulated. Now, in the United States, why, are, why, do, they, why do so many working class people believe that the election was stolen when it clearly was not? I think it's not that hard to understand. First of all, they believe the system is rigged top to bottom. They believe... Everybody on both sides of the political spectrum is corrupt in the political establishment. They also believe that nothing is beyond these people. They believe that if they can, they'll take everything away from me because they've been taking it away for the last 40 years. And they also understand that they are powerless to stop it. They're completely cynical about the system. They believe it it's been captured by the elites. They believe the elites will do anything to hold on to it. And now along comes Trump, somebody who they believe is contemptuous, which he is, of the system because he's a sociopath. And they, he says to them, look, this party stole. And why would they believe Trump? Two reasons. The party's been screwing them over for 40 years. The party's candidates openly tell them that there's nothing we can do. When Clinton and his, his Hillary, when Bill and Hillary Clinton passed NAFTA and in the aftermath of NAFTA, when people's lives were devastated, what did the Democratic Party tell them? Free trade, man. Free trade is like the laws of gravity. There's nothing you can do. You lost your job? Tough shit. Suck it up. Go find a better job. This is their party telling them this. Now they're told that that same party has stolen the election. And <laughs> there is a chunk of them that will believe it because they're utterly cynical about the system. And what did I say in my book? For the working class, when it finds that it has no power in its class position, its go-to ideology, its natural ideology is cynicism and a belief that the entire system is corrupt because, in fact, that's how you rationalize what's happening to you. Now, when you're already disposed to believing that the system is corrupt, of course, you're easy to manipulate on matters but that, that you don't directly experience every day because you're, you're dependent on information. I don't think it's a mystery at all, to be honest. I, I really don't. I think it's astounding that the left thinks that theories of false consciousness are to be tested when, in the electoral limit. Elections are the most complicated thing on earth. It's a very uh, complex mix of emotions, rationality, and teasing all those things out is extremely difficult. The, the place you go if you really want to see if people are cognitively deficient, if they don't understand themselves, is in matters that they directly experience every day. And on those matters, you ask for 40 years, Americans have been asked, what's the most important thing for you in your life? 
they always give the same answer, economic issues. It's always the same answer, economic issues. Now they're asked, what should we do about them? And they're, then they're all over the place because they, at that moment, they reach for information, external information, and they have no source. There are every single avenue of information in America is a bourgeois institution. Every single one. What do you expect these people? They're supposed to spontaneously have a trade policy, <laughs> spontaneously have political... This is just nonsense. It's from an intelligentsia that despises the poor. You hold your standards up high and you go, if you don't meet these standards, you're irrational. You have false... It's just nonsense. I, I cannot agree more than I do with you, Vivek. Why? Let me first, just a couple of short, I hope, short notes. First, 68. Did you notice, I noticed, because I'm old enough, blah, blah, I was there, how some commentator put this nicely, the way we remember today 60s, it's basically not 60s, but 70s. Because (laughs) when the system stabilized itself, all the social components in France, you remember the highest moment students joining striking workers from a Renault factory and so on. All that disappears and 60s remain orgies, sexual freedom, free use of drugs and so on and so on. It's incredible how we uh, falsely reinvented the 60s. Next point. I think it's very important, Vivek, what you mentioned. It's not just uh, it's not just uh, 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 in uh, uh, quantitatively determined standard of living, how much you earn. It's uh, one factor which concerns very much daily experience, which is, as you pointed out, this intensity, hyperactivity, and so on and so on. And would you agree? That's my question to you, Vivek. Uh, Would you agree about two points? First, that one, paradoxically, of the reasons of the stability of the system, it's precisely its hyperactivity. It's not that you don't do anything. You have to survive today. You have to be hyperactive all the time. And precisely this hyperactivity doesn't give you not even a chance to withdraw, but more important, now I come to my topic. Uh, It's crucial what you said about this. People don't believe in cynical distance and so on. Would you agree or am I going a little bit too far? But I tend to believe myself here that uh, cynicism today, it's not a failure of ideology. It's the most popular, almost common, everyday ideology. And as such, I don't think it really bothers the system. Uh, It's almost, I would say, in the interest of the capitalist system that people don't take seriously how to to, uh, get politically organized and so on. What the regime prefers is something like Politics always gets corrupted. You will always be screwed up. Just stick to your private interests. So we have this paradox that maybe the predominant mode of, I still call it ideology, is this cynical distance towards every 
think so let me let me take up both points yeah uh, I very much agree with both of them. And let me um, rephrase what you said. Uh, as regards the first point, which is what you call hyperactivity. Uh, I think this is a absolutely natural and pervasive consequence of neoliberalism. Now, by this hyperactivity, what are we really talking about? What we're talking about is in the last 40 years, all of the protective institutions that the working class had built up from the 19-teens, trade unions, social safety nets, medical care, childcare, neighborhood associations, social gatherings of any kind have all been torn apart. Productivity has been stagnant, wages have been stagnant, precarity has become now pervasive. So what do workers do? They are constantly on the treadmill trying somehow to survive. The hyperactivity, Slavoj, that you're talking about is the hyperactivity of somebody trying not to sink when they've been thrown in the water. They're just working their asses off. They're, they're terrified. They don't, have, they don't know what old age is going to bring them. They don't know what will happen if they fall sick. The biggest cause of bankruptcies in the United States today is when somebody falls sick. How barbaric is a system where if you fall ill, you lose everything you have? So the hyperactivity is a material hyperactivity when you shut off everything else in your universe and you just look at getting through the day. And there is no better way of stabilizing the system than to turn people into hamsters who are just on a, this, this roller thing, constantly working, constantly just trying to stay alive. Your second point about cynicism flows directly from this. The cynicism, you're 100% right. It's, you can call it ideology, and I do. It's, an, it's a rationalization. But what is cynicism, really? Cynicism is the belief that nothing can be changed. Now, it is a natural and accurate understanding of the reality around them when they are atomized, when they don't have political parties, when they don't have institutions. Of course, they'll become cynical because it's the only way they can make sense of the lives that they're living. When they have no choice in any important decision in their lives, the natural response to say is, this is just a fact of nature and I will never be able to change it. Now, your point was, doesn't, doesn't this serve the ruling class? Of course, because when you're cynical, what's your natural next step? Is to opt out, is to give up, is to not try to change anything. Noam Chomsky said this a very long time ago. He said, the genius of the American system is this. It doesn't try to take away your rights. It just makes it not only impossible, but also to you, it seems pointless to try to exercise those rights. You don't need authoritarianism in America. Half the population already doesn't vote. You don't need to make people scared of changing something because they already believe they can't change anything. That is a natural response to cynicism. And it is astounding to see self-styled progressive and liberals now come and heap shit on these people because they're cynical about the system, because they're not organizing, because they'll be easily manipulated, because they feel that the election is stolen. Election is stolen. Trump didn't invent this. Hillary Clinton did. For four years, she said, she won the election, but the Russians stole it. Four years. And it's supposed to be Trump, who is the, is the stolen election dude? Both parties are doing this. Both parties are slowly encroaching on the democratic space. And as long as the left continues to heap opprobrium and 
criticism towards the majority of the population because they're too white, too male, too hetero, this and that and the other, it just tells you it's not a left. It is a section of the middle class that has found a way to express its contempt for working people, contempt for the working class, either through writing them off or through the exoticism. Why are they exotic? I'll tell you why. Because you can't go to Bolivia and organize these indigenous. You could just watch movies about them and talk about it. So look at your life. You are now a revolutionary socialist who has written off the working class and who thinks the revolutionary agent is somebody who you'll never actually be able to see in your life. What's the, res what's the result? Yeah, very convenient. I never have to do anything. I can simply watch black and white documentaries about the sexual mores of Bolivian peasants and talk shit about the working class as being white supremacist. Yeah, that's your left. I mean, I totally think agree. Can I, sorry, please, please. Uh, so one other question, I think like, um, I think that is right. And I think there's, you know, a kind of call in this book to organize, to, for the left to think of themselves as organizers rather than as sort of contemplative outsiders looking at the irrationality of the social scene and sort of being, you know, whatever, eating your popcorn while the world collapses. Um, I think... One question I have, I guess, for both of you, really, because, you know, Slavoj, you're in, in many ways, I think you're of like your life's work is like ideology critique. And so I'm wondering, you know, the call for leftists to take organizing seriously, to think about interests. Is there a place? What place does ideology critique have in that? Um, is there a future for ideology critique and also for the more kind of constructive project of ideology, sort of socialist ideology construction that Vivek, you point to? I'm curious about both of your thoughts on that. Let me take this one. Please, Vivek, you, if you want, go on. I think there's this ideology critique is in fact central for the left, even though I think that the world runs on material interests. So how is it central? Well, there are two ways, one obvious and one perhaps not so obvious to today's left. One way in which it's central is that even though workers make their choices based on material considerations, they rationalize those choices through an ideological apparatus. And oftentimes when you encounter workers, you will find them steeped in what you regard to be ideology because they have to live with their lives. Some of that ideology will be eh, harmless cynicism, some of it will be quite pernicious. So, for example, the racism that one sees in a lot of American workers is a way of dealing with their own insecurity. There's this ridiculous concept that left academics like to work with called racial resentment, which means that white workers are angry at their racist because they resent the fact that blacks have better lives, which is really absurd. And Someday in Catalyst, we need to have an article on this because the very same data that seems to show racial resentment is actually showing racial anxiety. And that's two very different things. It's one thing to be anxious about your jobs and not want a Mexican to take it over. It's quite another to say, why does this Mexican lead a decent life? I resent him for doing so. Resentment is the wrong term. But you will find racism. You will find a lot of misogyny. And you have to now try to get workers to come out of it, they will not come out of it if you simply wag your finger at them. They will come out of it if you talk to them about why they hold these notions and if you explain to them everything they have to gain by ditching those notions. So you get out of ideology through organizing around people's material interests, not by shaming them, not by dismissing them. You encounter workers typically 
in some way or form steeped in ideology. So all organizing starts as ideological critique. The point of my book is the ideological critique cannot work unless it's anchored in an understanding of people's actual interests. And they'll tell you what those interests are. You don't have to go tell them. They already understand them. That's point number one. Point number two is this. A lot of the work of ideological critique has to do with undoing the damage of the intelligentsia. The problem, if you really want to find ideology, don't look to workers, look to intellectuals. Nobody believes bullshit ideology and bullshit ideas more than intellectuals do. So some of what we're doing on the left today, why do I write a book like The Class Matrix? It's not, no worker's going to read it, very few are. It's designed to show that the real problem right now is the left intellectuals and the garbage theories that they've been propagating. So much, you look at the organization you're in, Jeremy, the DSA, it's filled with garbage. It's filled with virtue signaling. It's filled with notions, this pandering to identity politics, all of which is middle-class politics. A lot of what the work inside political organizations right now has to be ideological critique, not of workers, but of the middle class that claims to be on the left. Much of what Marx did, what was the capital is a critique of political economy, he is not only trying to develop political economy, he's also critiquing political economy that he has received from the classical tradition as being steeped in ideology. So we do ideology critique in two ways. One is as organizers, you critique the everyday spontaneous ideological rationalizations that workers have. That's the easy part. The harder part is if you're circulating among intellectuals to try to get parts of the intelligentsia to see the ideology in their work and in their colleagues' work. Because unlike workers who have a material interest in ditching nonsensical notions, intellectuals do not. And today's intelligentsia has a material interest in propagating bullshit. That's the heart. Now, why should you do that? Because the fact is a lot of the left today is in middle-class circles, in universities, in academia, and you're gonna, those who are well-intentioned, those who wanna do good, are misled by what we would call ideology, which is these forms of liberal identitarianism, virtue signaling, genuflecting in various ways. And one has to try to equip them with an, a, a better understanding of capitalism and hopefully motivate them to do real politics and not this symbolic cosplay politics that so much of the left does. That's all I have to say. I just want to add something because I, again, Something is missing here. At the end, somebody should pull out a knife because we are just agreeing with each other. <laughs> I like this. One point. I see not a hope. It's a very dangerous phenomenon, but we should build on it. Maybe this is more typically European. I followed through my friends and so on. Something specific about, and they are not always the good guys, uh, this new type of social protest in Western Europe, like Gilets Jeunes, Yellow Vests in France, Podemos in Spain, and so on. This is uh, discontent, but which is not, so it's not cynicism, passivity. They want to do something. But it's obvious that they cannot articulate themselves in the existing options of the political space. The moment Podemos did this, they are now 
a very modest uh, social democratic, very modest social democratic party. And that's one argument often listed that I like to mention again and again, how, you know, when in America they were saying Bernie Sanders, crazy socialist. If you compare Bernie Sanders' most radical statements by, let us say, Swedish, I don't idealize them, but around the Swedish social democracy program in the 60s, they are ultra more radical and so on. But the point I want to make is that these movements and in uh, with yellow shirts protesting in France, it's even more ambiguous. You cannot clearly identify them. Uh, I mean, they, they, you have even elements of anti-immigrant racism, a little bit, but, but it is a genuine discontent which cannot be translated into existing political space. You know where I experienced this at its purest? Once in the middle of, or towards the end of Tony Blair's reign in the UK, I was in London and I watched a week before elections, general elections, some big uh, popular tens of thousands of people participating, opinion poll, who is the most hated person in the UK? Tony Blair won. A week later, there were elections, Tony Blair won. So obviously, there is some discontent here, very dangerous one, which maybe gives some hope. The second thing about cynicism of this pseudo-radical liberal middle class left, you know what is, now I will not go into theory, but a very personal experience. That's why I shade that. A friend asked me, are you against death penalty? Uh, my answer was, yes, I am. But after we shoot some of the people who deserve it, and among them, the aesthetic, this great art, Biennales. They are art at its purest, totally immersed into capitalism, but their ideology, their introduction, it has to be anti-Eurocentric. They even include awareness of it, how we know we are totally manipulated by, but as such, they fit perfectly into it. So I totally agree with you. Yes, Stalinist purges, sorry, not literally. Um, uh, next, my final point, where would you agree or not? But I, uh, not that I try to save traditional critique of ideology, but you know, the part which I often emphasize, and I would really like to conclude your direct possible critical opinion, is that what I find so fascinating in Marx is that in capital, when he, where he uh, analyzes not ideology in this abstract sense, but actual life experience, ideas, presuppositions, which are part of material reality, he speaks about things like commodity fetishism, which Interestingly enough, he doesn't dare to call, he never calls it ideology. Right. But it is an illusion which 
is not ideology in the sense that elaborated by professors, priests, whatever. It's part of your daily experience. And I think we should, even with, when ordinary people, and by this I mean us also, when we are confused, don't think ideology in the sense of all the books behind. Think about illusions that you follow in your daily life, even if you, in your full awareness, would say, of course, I don't believe it. If you uh, allow me to conclude with the joke, which is my favorite joke on ideology today, which I used, I would say, about 40, 50 times in my work or whatever, but it's perfect. Niels Bohr, the great guy, Copenhagen. You know the story, you must know it. He was visited by a friend in his country house where he saw a horseshoe above the entrance to the house. And the friend, another scientist, asked him, but you are a scientist. This is superstition. In Europe, this means uh, a horseshoe above the entrance prevents the entrance, prevents evil spirits to enter the house. And Niels Bohr gave a perfect answer. He says, of course, I'm a scientist. I don't believe in it. But I have it there because I was told that it works even if you don't believe in it. <laughs> That's how cynicism today works. You don't have to believe in it. Look, that would be my lesson to ordinary people, among whom I include myself, especially university professors, workers, and so on. Isn't it that often? My last question to you, Vivek. I, I found a passage in, uh, otherwise he's often too liberal for me, but nonetheless a nice one, in uh, George Orwell, the early Orwell for 37, when he noticed at that point already that many progressive intellectuals, they see injustice in the world, they protest against it, but that if you look closely at it, they are hyperactive, but you can feel like, let's talk all the time about change to make sure that nothing will really change. You know, yeah. that's yeah. the horror that I feel with many today's critical theory intellectuals. They, think, they yeah. talk about change, but the moment change comes close, they withdraw, and there is Another a thing which I especially say, it's pseudo-opportunist radicalism. Whenever there is a chance of maybe a small change, like Bernie Sanders, I don't idealize him. But, uh, you know, I have many disagreements with AOC, the beautiful one. But she said something wonderful when Bernie was attacked by some feminists. She said, in your spirit, Vivek, I think, she said, he's so precious to us precisely because he's an old white man. Yeah. Such people can also be for us. And, okay, some of my radical friends said, no, he's just an old social democrat. This is not yet the true revolution, and so on and so on. I, what I almost absolutely hate today, even more than cynicism, which is, as you pointed out, Vivek, our everyday experience, understandable, is uh, this, uh, how do I call it, uh, 
principled opportunism. You wait for some true authentic revolution, which means whenever some movement really begins, you say, oh, this is still in bourgeois limits, it means nothing, and so on and so on. That's what really horrifies me. Yeah, I, look, let me pick up on a couple of points, uh, Slovoy, because I, I, I agreed with everything you said. We, we are both now talking about ideology critique within the intelligentsia and within the middle class. That's what we're talking about. And what you find it in two different ways. One is their interests coming out in the narrowing of what the ambitions are for social change. And fundamentally, this is narrowing it so that social change becomes upward mobility for the middle class. So what we call identity politics today is not any longer anti-oppression politics. It's not changing the lives of working class black people or working class women. It is increasing the chances for mobility for black professionals, black politicians, black business people, and for women, exactly the same, women professionals, women politicians, etc. So racism is now something that inhabits the top echelons. What in, in, it's astounding. There, here's Bernie Sanders talking about making community colleges free for everybody. But in New York City, the debates around education are about why there aren't more black students in the most selective high school in the city. In universities, the debate is why Harvard, Yale, Princeton don't have a more diverse student body, not about why schools for black working class people are crumbling. So this move, so-called movement for racial justice is actually a movement for upward mobility of elites within these, these sections of the population. That's counter to social change, but it in fact is simply a naked expression of class interests. Now let's talk about the cynicism that you're talking about. The, the other way in which you see, so this is one way, I call it simply contempt for the poor. What today's identitarianism is a contempt for working class black people and working class women by their own elites. It's just like nationalism has been throughout the history of the world. Nationalism was always captured by elites and then turned into a program for their own upward advancement. Now, let's look at this ultra leftism. Well, why is nothing good enough for you if you're an ultra leftist? Because it, it absolves you of the responsibility of trying to do anything. You're still waiting. You're waiting for that perfect moment, that perfect movement, that perfect upheaval. And, so, and th this is exactly what the exoticism is. Why is the exoticism so appealing to so much of the Western left? Because it's a faraway land. It's all occurring someplace, somewhere that you'll never have to be, never have to go. And now you can commodify it. You can aestheticize it. You can talk about it all you want, but at no cost to yourself, no sacrifice to yourself. It's no surprise that a lot of this uh, aestheticized, exoticized discourse is also incom incomprehensible. It's impenetrable. Because when you're saying things, that, as you saw in my book, Slavoj, the Orientalism, when I'm a critique of, of post-colonial theory, yeah. why is post-colonial theory impossible to understand? It's because they're racist. It's because if they openly say dark people can't do math, brown people don't understand their interests, it'll sound a lot like 19th century colonialists. So they have to couch it 
in an impenetrable language to give it the appearance of profundity, whereas in fact it's garden variety racism. So we are in an intelligentsia right now that not only has given up on trying to change the lives of the vast majority, it never had any interest in it. The left, if it's going to come about again, will have to be a left that recaptures the spirit of humility, sacrifice, clarity, and ambition. That it's not enough to open up some spaces for upward mobility for minority elites. The project is about changing the lives of the vast majority, which means taking on those very elites that are trumpeting these tiny little eddies right now of social progress, what they call social progress. I think we're only at the very earliest stages of that. I think the left from the days of Lenin has basically died and in its wake has left a great deal of quite destructive cultural, intellectual and political baggage. I think we are now going to have to rediscover as the left in the late 19th century did that the way to social progress is through and with working people, not around them. And it's our responsibility to make ourselves relevant to them, not their responsibility to make themselves appealing to us. Can I add an important conclusion? Sorry. Just directly apply. But you, this was crucial for me when you said, yes, uh, uh, everyday experience of ordinary people, but at a certain point, economic politics and so on, they need experts. And what I liked so much, whenever, and even through my obscenities, I can, it's easy for me to find link, I'm not patronizing them, I'm dirtier than them, with the so-called ordinary people. But you know what I always respected from them? They have all so-called, sorry for to use the term, ordinary people were immensely sensitive to for high intellectuals to patronize them in the way which appears egalitarian. I was told by Terry Eagleton that one big British historian, that's the lesson for me, uh, in the 70s, late 60s, wanted to do, it was fashionable there. He went, I don't think it was Eric Hobsbawm, maybe it was him, I'm not sure, he went to a big factory and gave a speech to workers. And he began with this falsely solidary egalitarian view. He said, I'm here to learn from you. I don't know anything more than you. And then something sublime happened. An ordinary worker interrupted him and told him, Sorry, no, you are paid to know things that you cannot know. You are here to teach us. Don't give us bullshit that you don't know more than us and so on and so on. You see, there is also this false solidarity of the left. And uh, Vivek, maybe this is my own, own example that will maybe amuse you. Another of my sublime experiences, I repeat it all the time, sorry, was when I was decades ago in Missoula, Montana. And I met some, how do you call them now officially, Native Americans. And then I met some actual Native Americans there. Of course, 
through exchange of obscenities, I, we immediately became friends. And then uh, uh, I used the term Indians, and immediately there was a politically correct white liberal who interrupted me, no, this is racist, they are Native Americans. And you know what my, whatever you call it, Native American Indian friend did? I fell in love with him. He said to the white liberal, first, please allow us to call ourselves the way we want. He said, I don't like to be called Native American because, sorry, the opposite of nature is, is culture. What are you, cultural Americans? <laughs> we are Native. And then he finished with something beautiful. Maybe you know the joke, I'm sorry. He said, I much prefer to be called Indian because at least my name is then uh, a sign of your white man's stupidity who thought you were in India <laughs> when you came here. So, so they have, I admire this with my black friends, my Native American Indian, whatever friends, how sensitive they are to the falsity of this white liberal patronizing respect for their identity and so on. Absolutely. Couldn't agree more. Before we close, is there anything you two disagree about? <laughs> you know, it looks very bad. When the two people are so close as we are, I think it looks very bad. I really enjoyed it so much. Thanks very much. And I hope it's not the last time. I, I've, I'm, I very much appreciate your taking the time, Slavoj. It's the first time. Well, got I will try to make a jump over to to New York, if Good. everything will not go wrong. Who knows, maybe the universal uh, uh, money will already be rubles at that point. <laughs> <laughs> I will come there and uh, NYU, uh, 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 NYU, Washington Square, that's my territory, so Fantastic. we can meet there. I Fantastic. Hope. I look yeah. forward. Thank you. Thank you really Thanks. both. Thank Very you, Vivek. Thank you to Zizek. I love the rhyme. I forgot to mention. But um, uh, I immediately noticed it. <laughs> and you know what's the nicest thing? My is Zizek Vivek. It's yeah. not Zizek or what, so it rhymes even more than it may appear. Yeah. So thank you to you both. Uh, thanks to our audience for watching. Um, please hit like, subscribe, and share the channel, Jacobin Channel, with your friends. And uh, again, uh, Vivek and see it. I can't even pronounce the names now. <laughs> Vivek and Slavoj, uh, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you all. Thanks. Bye bye.